This episode is brought to you by GSK. Each year, there are thousands of deaths from vaccine-preventable diseases in the U.S. At GSK, we develop and manufacture vaccines to help protect people against diseases like flu, meningitis, and shingles. And by exploring innovative technologies, we're working to develop new vaccines against diseases previously beyond our reach. Because the more diseases we prevent, the more lives we can save. In the third year of his second term, the president of the United States, Barack Obama, became a man with a plan, a plan to deal with climate change. He called it the Clean Power Plan, which required that states cut the amount of carbon dioxide spilled into their atmosphere by the year 2030 by the amount of 30 percent. Because while it's the burning of coal that keeps the lights on in a lot of cases, it's also the burning of coal that speeds up the process known as climate change. Overseen by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, the plan has hit a hard wall of opposition from people who say that it will be ineffective, that it will kill jobs, and that it may not be legal. Well, we think that has the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, climate change. The EPA has gone overboard. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are here at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. with four superbly qualified debaters. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here at George Washington University will vote to choose the winner, and only one side wins. The team arguing for the motion starts with Charles McConnell. Charles, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Uh, Charles, you are a veteran of the uh, energy industry. You serve as executive director of Energy and Environmental Initiative at Rice. And for two years, you served in the Obama administration as the assistant secretary for fossil energy in the Department of Energy. Um, You said that you joined the administration in the hopes of advancing what you called an all-of-the-above energy strategy. Can you explain what that means? Renewables, nuclear oil, gas, and coal, all forms of energy to provide energy sustainability and energy security for our country. Okay, and can you please tell us who your partner is? My partner is Mike Nassi. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Uh, Mike, you're a lawyer. Uh, You're a partner at the firm of Jackson Walker. You practice environmental and energy law. Um, And a lot of your work relates to the Clean Air Act, and you have been directly involved in the fight against the Clean Power Plan of the president. In what capacity? Well, I serve as counsel of record to a coalition of electric power and mining interests, and I've also served as general counsel to a group called the Clean Coal Technology Foundation, which has worked in partnership with states in uh, pursuing carbon capture, utilization, and storage technology. Okay, and that's what we call full disclosure. Welcome the team arguing for the motion, climate change, the EPA has gone overboard. And we have two debaters arguing against the motion. Please welcome Jody Friedman. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. Jody Freeman, also a lawyer, and you served in the White House as Counselor for Energy and Climate Change. Now you're at Harvard Law, uh, where you are the founding director of the school's Environmental Law and Policy Program. Earlier this year, this is a lawyer question, um, the Supreme Court issued a stay 
uh, halting for the time being the Clean Power Plan's implementation while it's being litigated here in D.C. in circuit court and is probably going to end up in the Supreme Court? And if it does, what do you think its chances of survival are? It's a tricky question because we have only eight Supreme Court justices at the moment. Yeah. So we'll be waiting to see who the ninth turns out to be. But on the merits, I'd say I think EPA has some strong arguments. So I think it has a good shot at being upheld. Terrific. And your partner is? My colleague and friend, Carl Pope. Welcome, Carl. Carl, welcome to IQ2. You are a strategic advisor right now to Michael Bloomberg. Um, you were longtime executive director and chairman of the Sierra Club. And one aspect of the Clean Power Plan, as we're going to get into, is the phase-out of a lot of coal-fueled plants, which is something the Sierra Club has been working on a long time. You had a plan called Beyond Coal there, uh, launched under your leadership. And wh- during those, that period of time, how many plants were retired, let's say? Well, I would guess that without the Beyond Coal campaign, the United States would be saddled with 80 brand-new white elephant coal plants that no one can afford to operate Coal costs, okay. coal pollutes, I'm gonna and coal st- kills. I'm going to stop you because you're debating, <laughs> and round one hasn't begun yet. So hang on just a minute. But ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome again the team arguing against the motion. So that motion is climate change. The EPA has gone overboard. We go in three rounds. The first round, statements by each debater in turn, which will be uninterrupted and making his way to the lectern, speaking for the motion, climate change. The EPA has gone overboard. Please welcome Chuck McConnell, Executive Director of Rice University's Energy and Environment Initiative. Thank you. Uh, The motion's an interesting way to frame it. You know, the EPA has gone overboard. It's gone in the wrong direction. And it's provided us a false sense of accomplishment in terms of environmental protection. So let me be clear. The science says the climate's changing, and it is. CO2 is a forcing function. It is. We have a responsibility to mitigate CO2. We do. I'm no denier. But neither Mike or I represent any political party or any industrial consortia per se. Hey, I was in the Obama administration. But let me also be clear, the Clean Power Plan is not environmental legislation. It's not environmentally based policy. The science doesn't support it. And why? If you take a look at the Clean Power Plan, 0.2% reduction of global CO2 emissions. 0.2%. The impact of global warming... 0.01 degree Fahrenheit. And the impact of sea level rise, the thickness of a dime. And by 2025, the total impact of this plan will be offset by three weeks of Chinese emissions. So to me, it's scientifically underwhelming. But it's been called the cornerstone of our climate policy here in the United States and our leadership to the rest of the world. And I say that's naive, it's not informed, and we're breaking our arms, patting ourselves on the back. But I'll tell you what bothers me the most, is we're missing opportunities. We're missing opportunities to advance science, to create pathways to transformative technology that are going to be real global solutions. That's global leadership. Environmental regulations and law works. We did it in the 70s with clean coal plants and transformed our coal fleet. We did it in the 90s by taking tailpipe emissions out of automobiles with catalytic converters and hydro-treating. 
But we got to provide real pathways for that to happen. It's real public-private partnerships. It's technology commercialization and readiness and a pathway to do that. It's a commitment to interagency collaboration in our federal government, working together with industry to not simply ramrod policy down the state's throats. The global facts are we're going to have 2 billion more people on this earth by 2050, 90% of them in underdeveloped countries, and they're all going to be using the vast majority of fossil fuels. But what about technology? You know, there's a 1,000 plants globally running on coal, and the IPCC has identified CCUS as the most important technology globally to affect climate change, carbon capture, utilization, and storage. The EPA calls it ready and insists that it be installed, and it's not ready. Turn away from this pathway, go to a roadmap for global deployment, and embrace real leadership. That's technology, not ideology, and that's why you should vote for the motion. Thank you, Charles McConnell. And that motion reminding you, climate change, the EPA has gone overboard and here to make his presentation against the motion. Carl Pope, you can make your way to the lectern. He is former director and chairman of the Sierra Club. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Carl Pope. Thank you very much. These rules which are being proposed by the Obama administration are not enough, I would agree. But these rules as they stand are extraordinarily important. Once implemented, they will reduce CO2 emissions from the U.S. utility sector by 870 million tons a year. That is more than the total annual emissions from Germany, Iran, Korea, or Brazil. This one rule has said to the rest of the world, the United States is serious, we are a real partner. This rule was critical and I can say this because I was part of the conversations, in getting the government of India to agree to come to the table at the Paris COP and join the world in combating climate change. And India has now just canceled a huge portion of its planned coal bill. China actually is reducing its emissions 10 years earlier than it said it would. So the world is moving, and the American willingness to retire Our outmoded and non-competitive coal fleet, which is what this rule represents, was a very, very important part of that progress. This is not small potatoes. It's also not a silver bullet. But it's a big step forward. If you look at the latest studies, there's one that was done in Colorado by a bunch of renewable energy experts, which calculated that if the United States built the lowest-cost electricity system, that we can imagine with today's technology, nothing magic, we would be able to reduce our CO2 emissions by 80% by 2030 at no net increase in utility bills for customers. Five years ago, we had 523 coal plants generating 50% of our electricity, but also emitting the largest quantity of sulfur, nitrogen, mercury, and carbon. Every year, 13,000 Americans were estimated to be dying from those coal plants, which were old. 70% of them were more than 30 years old. And those old plants were outmoded. Very few had modern scrubbers. Why were they so dirty? 
Because in 1977, when Congress passed the Clean Air Act, the utilities promised, you don't need to regulate these plants. We're just going to retire them. They're going to be gone. You don't need to do anything about them. But they didn't keep that promise. They operated them dirty for 40 more years. The Supreme Court ordered EPA to regulate carbon if it found that carbon caused climate change. EPA looked at the scientists who said it does, and our opponents agree. Carbon causes climate change. Climate change is dangerous. The Clean Air Act requires that it be cleaned up. But this plan is working. Right now, 238 of the coal plants have already retired. We're almost half of the way to the goal set by the Clean Power Plan. And you will notice your lights are still on. Reliability has not been degraded. The sky has not fallen. It is getting cleaner. And that's the reason you should vote against this motion. Thank you, Carl Pope. I'm John Donvan. Round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate continues in just a moment. So a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, climate change. The EPA has gone overboard. You've heard the first two opening statements and now on to the third. Here to debate in support of the motion, climate change, the EPA has gone overboard. Mike Nasi, he is a partner at Jackson Walker, where he practices environmental and energy law. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Nasi. Well, thank you and good evening. First, let me just set the stage about what we're talking about here, the clean power plan, um, the 111D rule, as they referred. What EPA has done is they have passed a gas mileage requirement of sorts for existing coal and gas-fired power plants. And they have set that standard at a level that is more stringent than the standard that they have simultaneously passed for brand-new state-of-the-art plants. Let that sink in. That's like you being told by EPA that the car you already own is subject to a gas mileage standard that they recognize you can't meet and that is actually more stringent than what is being promulgated for a brand-new car. Well, that leads you to the first fundamental legal problem. It's called the the outside-the-fence issue. And what we have here is EPA not relying upon the definitions it has used, and they have instead expanded, massively expanded, the definition of a phrase, best system of emission reduction, which is contained within another phrase, standard of performance. And for nearly half a century of Clean Air Act jurisprudence, over Republican and Democratic administrations, That standard-setting practice under Section 111 has involved the assessment of technology and processes that can be applied inside the fence of individual sources. It has not included this reimagining and expansive definition that EPA has given, which says you can go outside the fence of a facility and you can make assumptions about what they might be able to do by interacting in a market or by paying somebody else to generate in their place. These outside-the-fence assumptions include things like generation shifting, like renewable energy. And renewable energy, by the way, isn't even governed 
by the rule. This section of the Clean Air Act has never been used for this purpose. This is exactly the type of overreach that the Supreme Court was warning against in its 2014 decision of Utility Air Regulatory Group, or UARG. Let me read from the majority opinion a phrase that I think you're going to hear a lot about in the disposition of what this, whether this rule is legal. When an agency claims to discover in a long extant statute an unheralded power to regulate a significant portion of the American economy, we typically greet its announcement with a measure of skepticism. We expect Congress to speak clearly if it wishes to assign to an agency decisions of vast economic and political significance. So the rule will fail on that ground. But let's shift to another legal problem, and that is that this rule is not enforceable by EPA because the assumptions it made, these outside-the-fence assumptions, they are not things that EPA has the power to make happen. And so you have a line of jurisprudence and a statute called the Federal Power Act. And in that area of the law, it has been held consistently that intrastate electric power systems are the purview of the state. Michael, I can give you one more sentence. I'm going to borrow from the metaphor that Professor Freeman's colleague Lawrence Tribe has said. If a robber approaches you and says your money or your life, it doesn't make that action legal because he says you can pay with cash credit or Bitcoin. Okay, long sentence, but your time is up. Thank you, (laughs) Michael Nassi. Our final debater against the motion, climate change, the EPA has gone overboard. Jody Freeman, the Archibald Cox Professor of Law at Harvard and founding director of the law school's environmental law and policy program. Ladies and gentlemen, Jody Freeman. Good evening. Good evening. There are four reasons you should vote no against this proposition. First, the benefits of this policy vastly outweigh the costs. The projection for this rule is that by 2030, the benefits will be around between 30 and $50 billion. And the cost, and that's annual. And the cost, 5 to $8 billion. So you can see there this gap, the clear gap between benefits and costs. And that gap will shrink. In other words, it will be more costly to deal with this problem of climate change the longer we wait. Second reason you should vote against it, It's a meaningful policy that will actually help us make progress. Contrary to the other side's claim, as Chuck said, that this makes no difference, that it's meaningless and insignificant, therefore illegitimate, and shouldn't be pursued, it's just not the case. In fact, power plants in this country produce a disproportionate share of carbon pollution. Up to 30% of the economy's pollution is measured in 2013, and according to the nonpartisan International Energy Agency, that's 6% of global emissions. That on its own makes it significant. But what's really careless about that argument is that it amounts to saying that we shouldn't do anything about anything because we can't do everything all at once. That just can't be right. The third reason you should vote against the proposition is that it combines smart regulation with technology innovation. The other side's presentation, and Chuck made this point, is, rests on the idea that you should choose between technology like carbon capture and sequestration and regulation, on the other hand, and that you should choose against regulation because they imply it doesn't work. But in fact, the best combination is the two of them. 
the catalytic converter Chuck mentioned. It was invented in 1950, but it wasn't widely deployed, and it didn't appear in its modern, cost-effective form until Clean Air Act regulation required the auto industry to reduce emissions from the tailpipes of cars and trucks. The same is true of the Clean Power Plan. What it does is incentivize new technology, and it will stimulate carbon capture and sequestration, just the way it stimulated catalytic converters. The fourth reason is the legal argument that Mike made. There is no commandeering of the states or interference with their sovereignty or guns to the head, as Mike colorfully invoked, because the states have a complete opt-out from this policy. The states can say no. That deal, that bargain, that the federal government sets pollution standards and the states are given the opportunity to devise plans to implement them the way they see fit in their jurisdictions is at the heart of pollution laws passed beginning in the 1970s. And for 50 years, the Supreme Court has upheld that scheme as perfectly constitutional and in no way commandeering or interfering with the states. And finally, the argument that EPA is somehow veering out of its lane here and doing energy policy. And creating an unprecedented scheme beyond, as Mike said, the fence line, a discussion we'll get into in the dialogue. EPA has taken a flexible law, which Congress passed in 1970 and has amended subsequently, giving it broad discretion to set standards using the best system. And it has done that in a creative, in a cost-effective, and in a flexible way that gives the states many, many opportunities to meet the standard. For that reason, because it's a cost-effective, flexible, reasonable application of this law within its discretion, and because the benefits vastly outweigh the costs, you should vote no against this proposition. Thank you, Jody Freeman. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is climate change. The EPA has gone overboard. Now we move on to round two, and in round two, the debaters take questions from me and from you, our live audience, and they address one another directly as well. It is more free form. Our motion is this climate change. The EPA has gone overboard. We have heard the team arguing for the motion, Charles McConnell and Michael Nasi, argue that, number one, they make clear that they are not climate change deniers, but they do say that the EPA's clean power plan creates a false sense of security, that it is scientifically underwhelming, that the science does not support the plan, and it results in the federal government ramrodding a policy down the states, a policy that they don't agree with, that they say will lead to higher costs and miss opportunity to really work for innovation. The team arguing against the motion, Carl Pope and Jody Freeman, they feel the other side is really trying to make the perfect the enemy of the good. They, they do not accept an argument that uh, slight improvement is, is better than no improvement. They say that the plan is not a silver bullet, but it is a very, very big step forward, that it sets the United States up as an example for the rest of the world to follow, with the evidence already being changes in policy evident in India and in China. Also, they say the plan is economically attractive, that it will lead to further innovation. I want to go to the side first arguing in support of the motion. And go to you, Charles McConnell. You talked about the what you saw as the very, very slight reductions overall against the big picture of the carbon reductions that would result uh, from, from the implementation of the Clean Power Plan by the year 2030. You seem to be saying they're just not worth it. Your opponents challenge that idea directly. Again, they're saying to you, do not make the perfect the enemy of the good. Something is better than nothing. 
I, I think Jody said it the best. You can shut down every single coal-fired power plant in America and you're going to change the global balance by 6%. To be fair, I didn't say anything about shutting down every coal plant in America. And in fact, I really want to correct the record on this right off the top. Even with full implementation of this plan, the projection is we'll still be using 30% of coal for our electricity supply. So it's a red herring to suggest that it is shutting down all the coal in America. Charles, your response? But the fact is, if you shut them all down, it's only 6%. And that was fundamentally the question that was was raised to me. You see, these plants provide the opportunity for the United States to implement technology leadership, to be able to provide that to the rest of the world where the rest of the world doesn't have natural gas. It's not worth demonizing coal to the point where you throw away the opportunity to develop technology. That is not what is happening here. CCS, if it is developed, will be developed for new and new times. CCS is carbon capture and sequestration. The core concept is CO2 comes out of a power plant or a steel mill or a cement kiln or a natural gas plant, and you capture the CO2 in that exhaust stream, and you then either store it underground or turn it into another product, and thereby it does not damage the climate, which if you do that, it doesn't. That's CCS. That's CCS. There will be a quiz. But CC, but but doing this will not be done on forty-year-old coal plants. It will be done on brand new kinds of coal technology, and there is no conflict between developing those technologies, which the world could certainly use. I agree. While we rapidly retire the outmoded 30- and 40-year-old dirty coal plants, which are never going to be equipped with this technology. Well, the, the flawed premise is that this is only going to be about new plants. And, and the reality, as the Secretary mentioned, is there's already thousands of coal-fired power plants in the world, and the world is currently building the equivalent of our entire electric fleet. And not just in China and India, in Germany, in Japan and South Korea. So what Chuck is getting at is, if you undermine the economics of the, the one nation that has the affluence to actually commercialize this technology, if you undermine the economics of the industry that could do it, you're going to lose the opportunity to create meaningful technology that can be bolted on to that fleet of power plants across the world. Jody Freeman. I, I want to make sure the audience is focused on what I think is the really key question here, which is, what does the clean power plan do, really? Does it do any of these things, undermine the economics and destroy the potential for CCS and distract us from what we really should be doing and reject all this technology? It does none of that. The Clean Power Plan is based on a projection that we can deploy more renewable energy and substitute it for dirtier power. It's based on a projection that we can substitute natural gas for coal and wind and solar for both coal and gas. And that's not a wild fantasy of the government or the the Obama administration. It's based on what the states in the United States today are already doing, deploying these technologies. So the question I have for both Chuck and for Mike is, why would you not do the cheap and ready deployable thing your states are already doing with technology in order to pursue alone, exclusively, a much more expensive, much more difficult to deploy, much farther off CCS strategy that we both support, but we don't think it should displace the here and now opportunities Chuck, for clean you, technology. Do you take the challenge of that question, Chuck? What, what we're doing is looking to undermine the opportunity for coal-fired generation to continue to be in the mix. And if you look at the clean power plan, what, why seven states 
bear 40% of the burden of the implementation of this plan. Those are coal plants, states. Those states also have, from the Clean Power Plan, a pounds of CO2 per megawatt hour threshold that doesn't allow coal to be built in those states. In fact, in some of those states, doesn't even allow gas to be deployed. It requires you to install wind. So fundamentally, it's a forced renewable portfolio standard. It's not driven by an overall look at global technology. Carl Pope, your opponent is saying that the, that the clean power plant actually amounts to a Trojan horse way of getting wind and solar into the system. Well, to would, begin would, with... Was that true and would no, it upset that not, you? that is not true. And if somebody wants to build a coal plant with CCS, they can do so. The problem is right now nobody is ready to put in the money required to build a coal plant because the newest coal plant in Texas which is quite clean except for carbon, Sandy Springs, was opened in 2013. In 2015, it was shut six months of the year because it costs six cents to generate a kilowatt hour of electricity, and the market price in Texas right now is only three cents. Coal without CCS cannot compete in Texas without the clean power plant. That's the core economic dilemma the coal industry has. Its product costs too much. Mike Nessie. Let's be clear. The market is distorted. In every electric market, no matter how deregulated, we as taxpayers are subsidizing wind and solar onto the grid at $23 per megawatt hour. That is more than the wholesale price of electricity. That is a market distortion. The second thing that's happening is that environmental regulations do raise the cost. We're going to go to audience questions. Sir, I'll start with you. White shirt, about the fifth row. I'd like to ask about costs. Mr. Pope claimed that this, uh, the power plant rules will be very cost-effective, even, even very cheap, and that the cost of electricity would perhaps even go down. Isn't it the case that we have some examples where these policies have, are several years ahead of the EPA and electric rates have gone through the roof? Germany is... 35, 40 cents per kilowatt hour. California okay. is double the national okay, you, average. Okay, you've, na- you've nailed the question. So let me, before going on to you, would you like to take it on this side? Well, well you're absolutely Check right. And, and basically the costs will go up. If you look at those seven states that are going to bear 40% of the responsibility to make these targets happen in this country, energy costs are going to go up between 30 and 40%, period. Those states are the makers Those are the guys that make things. Everyone else who's a taker gets to sit on the sideline and take and point their finger at the makers and say, you got to make it better, you got to make it nicer for me, but I'm going to continue to consume, but I don't have to bear any responsibility for this plan. And that's not societal deployment of something that's supposed to be good for society. Carl Pope. Germany's power rates went up because Germany adopted a very inflexible and poorly designed way of encouraging solar. In the United States, we didn't go that route. And over the past five years, the percentage of renewable power in our electricity fleet has increased dramatically and is projected to increase still more dramatically. And our power bills have not gone through the roof. In fact, the wholesale price of electricity, the actual price of electrons, has gone down by 25%. Can we do it in 15 seconds of rebuttal to that? There's an article today in Bloomberg that said during this administration, the amount of increase of renewables in this country is 2%. 
We've had the CO2 reductions in this country because we've deployed gas. And it's a miracle in our country, but it's not a miracle available to the rest of the world. Carl Pope. It is perfectly true that the mix of clean energy technologies that works in the United States will be different than the mix of clean energy technologies that works in Africa or India. But the reality is that Africa and India are likely to take a much more renewables-intensive pathway, and that pathway has been forged for them by the wind and solar. We, the Germans, and the Chinese, in fairness, have deployed The more wind and solar we use, the cheaper wind and solar will be in Africa. I'm John Donvan. More questions from the audience and the results of tonight's debate still to come on Intelligence Squared U.S. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have two teams of debaters arguing it out against this motion, climate change. The EPA has gone overboard. More questions. Ma'am, raise hand here. Hi, Mary Beth Durkin. So I would like a concrete example from each side of what the clean power plan would do for a new energy technology. From that side and that side, I would imagine that side would argue it would enhance and something... Well, let's not hampered. predict. Let's okay. find out. Yes. <laughs> let's start with the side arguing against the motion. Um, which of you would like to take it? In Colorado, the Carl Public Pope. Service Corporation has 10 coal-fired power plants. Seven of them cost more just to operate than it would cost to replace them with new contracts for wind and solar. Under the Clean Power Plan, Colorado could decide to pay that utility the foregone profit on those plants, shut them down, replace them with new stuff, and give the utility the money it's entitled to and cheaper power for people in Colorado. Other side? So I spend a lot of time with people who actually own power plants. And the problem with this rule, it it undermines the economics of being able to invest in them. There is such a thing as dirty old coal plants in this country, and they're falling out of the grid just like dirty old gas plants, and at one point uh, in the future, old uh, wind turbines. The point is that we are throwing away well-controlled units and the opportunity that Chuck is talking about to allow for them to invest in partnership with DOE to commercialize technology. Okay, right down front here. Hi, this, this is a question for Professor Freeman. My name is Marlo Lewis. And it's about the cost-benefit uh, analysis that you touched upon. Uh, you said that the benefits from the Clean Power Plan vastly outweigh the costs. If you look at EPA's own estimates... Roughly $8 billion a year, just in the compliance costs. They don't talk about the economic impacts. Then they say a mid-range estimate, $31 billion a year in benefits, climate benefits. It's bigger if you include PM2.5. Those are fine particulate matter effects. But just looking at the climate, right? $31 billion a year in 2030. How is that even possible when EPA's own analysis indicates that in 2100, we may see less than a two-tenths of a degree reduction in global temperatures as a result of the Clean Power Plan. And as, as I'm the gonna, Secretary I'm, I'm said, gonna, there, was, there was a question mark there, rise. so let's okay. take it. Let me try to do this in a way that's sim- simplifying uh, and helpful. And that well, is you don't to have say, to patronize us. I no, mean, no, no, no. We, we can keep up. I, for myself, for myself. <laughs> okay. Um, it's helpful to simplify. 
What EPA has done in its projections is told you about a range of benefits that are public health and welfare benefits for things that will happen to people that will be averted, right, as a result of shifting to cleaner energy. Now, there are direct benefits from public health impacts, you know, avoiding going to the emergency room, kids not getting asthma, people not getting sick, that are incremental benefits over time that add up to the numbers you're talking about, and they dwarf the cost. I'm not sure I understand the 2100 problem with it. Consistently from now to 2020, from 2020 to 2030 and beyond, the benefits consistently are multiples of the costs. And nobody disputes that these are the social costs of carbon. But even if you don't believe EPA, you know, if you just want to throw out their numbers, there are economists, look at Nordhaus at Princeton, not considered a crazy liberal, who has modeled climate costs and benefits, and he himself has advocated for doing something now in terms of regulation to address climate change. Listen, Forget Mike, EPA's numbers. These are economist numbers on both sides of the aisle. Mike Nassie. We could spend a full hour talking about the shell game that is EPA's assessment of how somehow this rule creates benefits, including a reliance upon a bunch of things that don't have anything to do with carbon dioxide. Okay? And it's, it is fundamentally a dishonest process, frankly. But what I'd actually bring us back to is the rule of law. The Supreme Court has said when these vast economic and political significant issues are being determined, the agency has to have clear authority. They can't just make up a new approach for the first time in 50 years. Mike, can, go- I, can I put this question to you, though? You, yeah. just, you just said that they were playing a shell game. You used the word dishonest. What do you think the game is? It's really? an advocacy game to try to make... Controlled a rule, by whom? By the Environmental Protection Agency, the administration... Well, who in the environmental... I don't mean the name names, but I mean you're saying yeah. that it's filled with uh, fanatics? No, or? no, no. The regulators, they're advocates. They want their rule to survive. And one way of trying to make their rule survive is to create a public perception that it has some consequence, positively speaking, economically. Uh, yeah, and the me- way they do that is they put a very complex set of assumptions together about how there are economic benefits to so-called um, life, you know, a longer life okay. and a healthier life. I, I want to review with the audience what the Supreme Court has done. Mike keeps invoking the Supreme Court on his team. The Supreme Court ordered EPA to determine whether greenhouse gases pose an endangerment to human health and welfare. They did that in 2007 in the very famous Massachusetts versus EPA case. EPA made the finding that greenhouse gases endanger health or welfare after an exhaustive scientific review. That finding was challenged in the federal courts and upheld by the D.C. Circuit, and the Supreme Court refused to review it. I think it's a very serious accusation to suggest that the United States government across the board, including the Office of Management and Budget, staffed with uh, economists who typically are suspicious of agency agendas to accuse them of cooking the books. What they've used is well-established economic principles of regulatory impact analysis that every credentialed economist would agree are the typical ways of assessing costs and benefits, including putting a number on the social global cost of carbon. Well, the court did not give EPA blank license to regulate. It authorized that they could under the act generally. It is up to EPA to establish a legal mechanism to do so. And it is quite important that in the opinion where it struck down an effort by EPA to try to kind of make its own law as it relates to a permitting program or a tailoring rule that was struck down in that case, that the court shot across EPA's bow this language about how EPA can't do that. 
Here's what's fair to 15 say. 15 seconds for last word. What's fair to say is it's a hard legal question whether the word's best system of emission reduction can allow the agency to think about the whole system that operates in the utility sector. It's a fair thing to say the Supreme Court has never decided that particular specific issue and will be seeing new law. But it is not fair to infer that just because an agency has never done something before, it is precluded legally from doing it under the principle of deference for reasonable interpretations of ambiguous statutory terms. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is climate change. The EPA has gone overboard. And now we move on to round three. In round three, the debaters make closing statements uninterrupted. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Chuck McConnell, Executive Director of Rice University's Energy and Environment Initiative. You know, we can't help ourselves in America. We think about the U.S. and we see everything through our eyes. And the real story for climate change is being written globally. As a matter of fact, 65% of the emissions in the world will come from China and India by 2030. Think about that. If EPA wants to truly develop technology, much the same way that we did during the 70s with coal-fired power plants and the 90s with tailpipe emissions, the EPA collaborates with industry, sets up a roadmap with timing that can allow technology to be developed, deployed, and implemented, not set up situations where technology is declared commercially ready, and that's what this power plan does. It requires people to install it on new coal-fired power plants, and there's nobody that's going to put it on a new coal-fired power plant when it's still in R&D. So it, it's a disingenuous way of being passively, aggressively stopping technology development. I'll tell you the other thing that's really disappointing about this is we think about the world having the same access to resources that we do. We've had a natural gas miracle in this country for the last 10 years. And and for all the talk about renewables and how it's going to change the world and save the day, we've increased renewables in this country in the last eight years during this administration by 2%. The impact to CO2 in this country has been increased tenfold by natural gas. And I think we need and owe the rest of the world an approach that gets technology to the marketplace. Thank you, Chuck McConnell. The motion, climate change, the EPA has gone overboard. And here summarizing his position against the motion, Carl Pope, former executive director and chairman of the Sierra Club. You've heard from the other side a small set of arguments. One, EPA has gone too far because it hasn't provided the funding needed to commercialize carbon capture and sequestration technology. I think you can make a fair argument that the United States government has not invested enough in that technology. You can make a fair argument the coal industry has not invested enough money, but that has nothing to do with the clean power plant. The only argument they've made for why the clean power plan might impede this technology is that people won't be building new coal plants to test it out. Guess what? Without the clean power plan, nobody is going to be building new coal plants in the United States because the last round that was built, including Sandy Springs in Texas and a number of others, have all been huge economic white elephants because it is a reality 
We do have cheap natural gas in this country. And the combination of cheap natural gas and renewables means that building a new coal power plant is not a commercial proposition in the United States. So we're not going to be the ones who do that. The second thing you've heard is that the rule is too friendly, too efficient, too flexible. That somehow EPA doesn't have the power to issue a rule that good. I think that's odd, but I'll let Jody answer the legal issues. Finally, what you haven't heard from the other side is what they would have EPA do to clean up carbon dioxide from our power system in place of that to comply with its Supreme Court mandate to clean up carbon dioxide from the American economy. EPA is a regulator. It's not fundamentally a technology developer. And we haven't heard from the other side what they think their version of a power plant rule to clean up carbon dioxide would look like that would not represent, in their view, overreaching by EPA. Thank you, Carl Pope. The motion, climate change. The EPA has done overboard in here making his closing statement against the motion. Mike Nassi, partner at Jackson Walker, where he practices environmental and energy law. The most fundamental answer to Mr. Pope's question is that it's not EPA's job. But let me, let me try to draw you all into who really gets impacted by this rule. Imagine you're in 1980 and you're a community leader in rural America. And you get a, a, a pitch from the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, that let's start a rural electric co-op. Let's build a power plant to further the dream of rural electrification. And so you borrow several hundred million dollars with the federal government as your banker and build a plant. You choose coal because the Federal Use Act makes it illegal to use natural gas. And you choose coal because the Democratic National Platform says we should use more coal and expand coal usage because it's a national imperative. Fast forward 20 years, and the EPA asks you to install pollution control technology. And you do it, and you spend a few tens of millions more dollars, and you build that in to, to your rate structure. Now, because you have poor rural electric customers, you've relied upon the ability to spread that over the entire life of your facility, which was supposed to be 55 years. And then last year, EPA shows up and passes a standard that is one half of what your emissions are. It tells you, don't worry, it's flexible. But what that means is you've got to go pay somebody else to generate zero carbon for twice as much of your power plant. And that cost, again, on rural ratepayers. The face of this rule isn't just some monolithic industry. Rural electric cooperatives and small business are impacted by this rule because they are going to have to retire assets prematurely, and their ratepayers will be impacted dramatically. Thank you, Mike Nassi. Thank you. The motion, climate change, the EPA, EPA has gone overboard and here to make her closing statement against the motion, Jody Freeman, professor at Harvard Law and founding director of the law school's environmental law and policy program. I wanted to find a quote that would be fun or at least interesting to close with, and I found this one. It's not so fun, but it's at least interesting. It's from the president of Southern Company, a big utility that is adamantly opposed to the clean power plan, and the quote is this. This policy will increase the cost of electric power, increase the risk 
and reliability of electric service, disrupt the long-range planning of utilities, frustrate the regulatory process, and foreclose the use of clean coal technologies. And that quote was from Edward Addison, the CEO of Southern, talking about the acid rain program in 1989. The same arguments you heard tonight This will lead to ratepayer costs skyrocketing. It's too hard. It's too costly. It's going to stultify technology that ought to be developed otherwise. Is the playbook that the coal industry has been playing from for decades and decades. They always say the same thing. The auto industry said this in the 1970s when they were being regulated to control pollution from cars and trucks, and the catalytic converter came and developed and made that cost-effective. The same was true with the acid rain program. The coal industry said about the acid rain program, as I just read to you, it's impossibly expensive. And yet the acid rain program to control sulfur dioxide pollution and nitrogen oxides from the power sector reduced emissions dramatically and more cost-effectively than anyone ever predicted. Peabody Coal said at the time it would be $9 billion to implement that program, and it was on the order of $830 million. They're off by multiples. It's important context because they say it every time that the sky will fall. EPA is doing its job. It's just not true that it's not EPA's job. Congress said EPA is an environmental regulator. It's gone where the pollution is, the power sector, and it's implemented a rational, flexible, reasonable program to move us to cleaner energy. Thank you, Jody Freeman. And that concludes round three of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion is climate change, the EPA has gone overboard. So I have the final results, again, reminding you, it's the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage points between the first and the second vote who will be declared our winner. The motion is this, climate change, the EPA has gone overboard. In the first vote, 18% agreed with this motion, 59% were against the motion, and 23% were undecided. So the team arguing for the motion, they had 18%. Let's look at their second vote, 25%. That means they pulled up seven percentage points. That is the number to beat. Let's look at the team against the motion. Their first vote, 59%. Their second vote, 71%. They picked up 12%. That means the team arguing against the motion, by our rules, has declared the winner of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion has been climate change, the EPA has gone overboard. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S., We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Dana Wolf is our executive producer, Robert Rosencrantz is chairman, Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Clea Chang is chief marketing and digital officer. Chris Kamakawa is director of research. And I'm your host, John Donvan. You can now stream all of our debates on demand on Apple TV and on Roku devices with the new IQ2US app. For more information on that or to purchase tickets to our actual live events, visit IQ2US.org. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Connor Davis Family Foundation, David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, Thomas Campbell Jackson, Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Nemeth and Alan Quasha, George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Dr. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, 
the Rosencrantz Foundation, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, and the Paul E. Singer Foundation. From Intelligence Squared U.S. and me, John Donvan, thank you.